Lord, that your word works. And I thank you, Lord, that when we exercise faith in your word, that you do not fail us and you do not disappoint us. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for the Holy Spirit speaking through me. I pray, Lord, that that you would speak to every heart tonight. I thank you, Lord, for the great truths that we're going to look at tonight. I pray, Lord, that they would become real in our hearts and in our understanding. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. So we are uh, studying the book of Ephesians. And um, I want to do just a little bit. I never have... uh, I've I've taught from the book of Ephesians, but I've never uh, done a study uh, of this book, which which a lot of Bible scholars say is one of the most significant books in the New Testament, and uh, right right along with the book of Romans. It's all the Word of God, so I don't know how you can say one is more significant than others in a a sense, but but this is a powerful, uh, powerful book, and it's filled with... with, uh, Great revelation, great truth, uh, as we sang, that's what I have and that's who I am. Uh, the book of Ephesians, as we're going to get into tonight, reveals what we, who we are and what we have in Christ. Praise God. So the book of Ephesians, what it is, is a letter that, uh, that, uh, that was written to the church at Ephesus uh, by the Apostle Paul. And Ephesus was a coastal city in uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And it was the most prominent city in that region. And uh, I want to read again to you. I read this last week, but I want to do just a little bit of review uh, as, and as we, because we got new people here tonight that weren't here. I won't, uh, of course, I can't say everything I said last week. Otherwise, I couldn't say everything I have planned to say tonight, right? Unless we stay an extra hour, okay? So anyway... Uh, So this is uh, the introduction to the book of Ephesians from the Weymouth translation. And again, this is not scripture, but this is Mr. Weymouth. Uh, This is his introduction to this letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This appears to have been a kind of circular letter to the churches in Roman Asia. So in other words, it wasn't written just to the Ephesians, but it was supposed to be circulated around to the other cities and churches where there were believers for, for them to read it too. So in, in that sense, it's saying it wasn't, wasn't just specific there. And, uh, and one thing about Ephesians is, uh, in contrast to First and Second Corinthians, in First and Second Corinthians, in those letters, uh, Paul is writing, addressing specific questions, dealing with specific problems for that church. Now, it's applicable for us today, certainly. But Ephesians, he was not dealing with any problems or addressing any specific issues to that church. And so it's more general in that it's, it's just declaring uh, biblical truth for us. And Ephesians is neatly divided. There are six chapters. And, of course, we know that the chapters were added later by the translators. That When, when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't write it in chapter and verse, but it was, it was divided later. Um, into chapter and verse, and it's, but it's neatly divided, which I think they did a, an accurate job of it. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is, is teaching and talking about positional truth, who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, and, and all that that we're going to still be getting into tonight. Then in chapters 4 through 6 is a, is a practical application from the, from the foundation of who we are in Christ what we have in Christ, what our inheritance is in Christ. Okay, now here's how you take that 
inheritance, take that position, and here's how you live it out in everyday life and in your everyday relationships. And so you'll see that as we get further along uh, into the book that, that it, it unfolds like that. So, uh, but anyway, getting back to what, what uh, Weymouth says here, Ephesian, Ephesus was a well-known seaport and the principal city in Roman Asia. It was famous alike for its wonderful temple containing the shrine of Artemis and for its vast theater, which was capable of accommodating 50,000 persons. It'd be like one of our football or baseball stadiums today. Paul was forbidden at first to preach in Roman Asia. Remember we talked about that in our first session about how we, we tried to go into Asia. He said, but the, but the Holy Spirit did not permit us to go or we were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia. So it wasn't, wasn't a matter of that God didn't want the people in Asia minor to hear the gospel. It was a matter of timing. It was a matter of of doors being opened at the right time and all of that. <coughs> so he was forbidden at first to preach in Roman Asia. That's in Acts 16, 6. But he afterwards visited Ephesus in company with Priscilla and Aquila, Acts 18, 19. About three years later, Acts 19, 1, he came again and remained for some time, probably from, AD, from 54 to 57 AD, preaching and arguing or reasoning in the school of Tyrannus, until driven away through the tumult raised by Demetrius. He then went to Jerusalem by way of Miletus, but was arrested in the uproar created by the Jews and was taken first to Caesarea and then to Rome. This was probably in the spring of 61 AD. Late in 62 or early 63 AD, this letter was written together with the companion letter to the Colossians. So it was one of Paul, what they call Paul's prison epistles or prison letters. He wrote it from prison in Rome, likely late 62 or early 63 AD. All right. And so I want to go again. The first scripture we want to look at is, is um, Acts 19, where, we, where, we talk, where it talks about the birth of the church at Ephesus. And I want to look at that again uh, tonight. Verse, uh, verse 1 of Acts 19 and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So Paul, again, was, was there briefly in Ephesus with, a, with a Priscilla and Aquila. He leaves, he comes back three years later and, and finds these, what he assumes are disciples of Jesus, but then upon uh, further investigation, talking to them and asking about them or asking them, he found out they had only been acquainted with John's baptism. They hadn't even really heard about Jesus. And, uh, and, and notice the first question that he asked them, though, when he got there, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why did he ask that? Because the Holy Spirit is such an, and, and receiving the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit is such an important part of our Christian life. And sadly, much of the church world today is totally ignorant about the Holy Spirit. 
Oh, they may have heard the term, but they've never, they've never been filled with the Holy Spirit. They've never received the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And so that was, that was uh, paramount on Paul's mind. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, that clues us in on another thing too. If, now, when we're born again, we are born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to, to dwell in us. But there's a subsequent experience that's called being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if, if we got all the Holy Spirit there was to get when we got saved, then this question that Paul raises here makes absolutely no sense, right? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Well, if we, if, I mean, if we got all the Holy Spirit there was when we believe, then that wouldn't make any sense, all right? And so their, their answer to him was, we've not even heard about the Holy Spirit. And uh, so, so he says, well, wait a minute. What were, I thought you'd been baptized. What were you baptized in? They said, well, we've heard about John's baptism. And he says, well, John was getting the people ready for Jesus. And uh, so then he told them about Jesus. And then verse 5, it says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they believe on Jesus. They believe the gospel. They believe the message about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And, and so they believe on Jesus, and then they get baptized in water. And then verse 6 says, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. Now there might have been some women and children there. We don't know, but it just mentions the men. So we know that at the birth of the church in Ephesus, there were at least 12, and, these, and, the, and, the, and the church of Ephesus was birthed, just like the church in Jerusalem was birthed on the day of Pentecost with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, with the, with the believers receiving the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. So the church at Ephesus was a Spirit-filled church. Amen? So Paul spends the next three years there, and a great work of God takes place. Many people, many thousands of people came to the Lord. And uh, Ephesus was a very pagan city. They had all kinds of idol worship. They had a huge slave market. They had, they had uh, uh, prostitution. I was reading some background material today that they had, uh, they even had, and, they, and, and, ex, and excavations in that city, they've even found these these bricks or, or, or stones or whatever, uh, t- tiles that have footprints. And they think that these footprints, you know, that you could follow. If you're walking down one of the streets, you follow these footprints and it would lead you right to, right to the main brothel in the central part of the city. And uh, so it was a very, a very pagan, a very godless place. But right in the middle of that, God does a great work. Uh, the gospel impacts that city powerfully, tremendously, just like it can and should today. Amen. Amen. Praise God. So uh, verse 9, though, says, But when some were hardened and did not believe, he, but spoke evil of the way. Paul goes into the synagogue first for, for three, I think, three weeks and, or three months. And I think three months. And, uh, and, and some of the Jews didn't believe. He goes to the Jews first because that was his method. We, we, the gospel is for the Jew first, and so he takes it to them, and, and, and a lot of them rejected it. So he says, okay, you know, you had your chance. Now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he says he uh, withdrew the disciples, and he went to the reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Verse 10 says, and this continued for two years, 
so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And that's quite a remarkable thing that in the space of two years, every person dwelling in Asia, now again, it's Asia Minor, so it's not like Asia that we think of today, which is, you know, part of, part of Russia and then all of, uh, you know, all of China and, 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 and the uh, Far East and, and, and all of that. That's not, that's not what they're talking about. But yet it was still a large area, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and every one of them, all who dwelt in Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord Jesus. Praise God. Now, some people, obviously, that was, a, that was an important city uh, of, of commerce, and many people were passing through there. So a lot of people, because they passed through Ephesus, heard the gospel. But also, I'm certain that many of, the, of those people, those believers that were impacted with the gospel, they themselves went out. They sensed a call, and they went out from Ephesus, and they threw out the, 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 that whole region of Asia Minor. They shared the gospel they shared the word of the Lord Jesus so that all the people dwelling in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Praise God. So this really, we could say, this school of Tyrannus where Paul was speaking daily, teaching daily, uh, was the first missions evangelism school. And, uh, and as we keep reading, we just see, again, some of the great work that God did there. In verse 11 of Acts 19, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And so they saw the success that Paul was having, and Paul was doing it to get people delivered. They were doing it to try to make a buck. And uh, that was their that you know that was their livelihood, and uh, they were they were exorcists, and so they said, well, we're going to try this method that Paul uses, and so they they said, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, all right. So there were seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priests, who did so, and the evil spirit answered, spoke out of that person they were trying to get the demons exorcised from, and probably growled at him and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Wow. So again, a great work of God was happening there in Ephesus. And, and again, uh, reading some of the background material uh, the, the, the witchcraft and the occult was very prominent in the city of Ephesus. In fact, there were, there were writings and books that were, that were called the, uh, the Letters of Ephesus. And these were all uh, uh, occult uh, witchcraft books. And so the people took all this stuff. They saw, they saw the demonstration of the power of God. And they saw that, 
that, uh, you know, you've got to be in Christ. You've got to be authorized. You've got to know Jesus or this won't work for you. And in fact, you open yourself up to some, you know, uh, pretty serious stuff here. And so, so it says the fear of God fell, fear fell on all the people. And the believers said, look, we, we, we can't play with this. We, we gotta, we've been kind of, we're in the church, we're saved, we love Jesus, but yet we're still kind of holding on to some of this stuff over here. And they said, we're getting rid of that. And they brought it and they got rid of it and they, and they burned it. It was 50,000 pieces of silver. It's not stuff they wanted to donate to anybody or sell. Right? Some folks don't need it. Right? Folks don't need that. You know, if you've got, if you've had or got, I'm assuming most of y'all probably wouldn't have anything, but if you've got stuff like that, don't give it to somebody and, 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 and share your demons with them. Get rid of it. Amen? All right. And so that's what they did. And as a result of that, it says, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Prevailed over all that darkness prevailed over all that, that sexual perversion, prevailed over all the witchcraft, prevailed over all the occult. The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Praise God. And there were so many people getting saved, so many people turning from out of worship to serve the Lord Jesus, to serve the living God. But the craftsmen that made the idols, they were getting upset because their business dried up. Nobody was buying their idols anymore. Praise God. I, I uh, think about, you know, the revivals that Charles Finney had uh, in the 1800s where he would go into cities and, and all, the, all the bars would close down. All the gambling places would close down because nobody was interested in doing that anymore. The whole town practically would get saved. I believe God can do that again. I believe he can do it again in our day. Amen? Praise God. So the book of Ephesians, though, it's a letter to the church, to this church that was, that was started, that was birthed in the, in the Holy Spirit and this supernatural outpouring of God and this, and this mighty move of God's Spirit and, the, and, and demonstration of the power of God. That, that's who this letter was written to, and it's written to us today. It's written to, it's the Word of God, and it's written to us as New Testament believers. So again, let's read Ephesians 1. We, we read and talked about verses 1 through 6 last week, so we're going to read, we're going to start there, read through verse 6, and then we're going to keep going and read through verse 14. Then we'll stop and talk about verses 7 through 14. So look, Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. I want you to notice, as we read through this next passage, I want you to notice the phrase, the phrases in him, in Christ, and in whom. Just like we saw them in the previous passage in verse, uh, verse uh, 3, it said, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
And verse 4, it says, He chose us in Him. And so we see more of that as we get into verse 7. In fact, the first two words in verse 7, In Him, everybody say, In Him. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ." both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who, were, who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of its glory. For again, the phrase is in him, in Christ, and in whom. We're going to look through these phrase by phrase. So this is talking about, again, talking about who we are and what we have in Christ. So again, verse 7, let's look back at it. It says, in him we have redemption through His blood. Hallelujah. So Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he's writing to us today, in Him we have redemption through His blood. And as I mentioned, there was a huge slave market in Ephesus. And so Paul identifies right with that. And many of these people that, that had, had gotten saved that he's writing back to now, Many of them had been, and some even were still, slaves. And yet, that now they're, they're in Christ. And so, he says, so he's telling them, he says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. Redemption means to buy back. It literally means to purchase one's freedom from slavery. So, so Paul capitalizes on their understanding of, of slavery and the, and the huge slave market there in Ephesus. And he says, you know, folks, I'll tell you what Christ has done for us. I'll tell you what Jesus has done for us. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus has purchased our freedom from slavery to sin. Hallelujah. You missed a good place to shout right there. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. And so he tells them that. He says, in him we have that. We have redemption through his blood. Praise God. And then he says in verse number 10, he says that in the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. And so there's that, that term again, in Christ or in him. And he says he's going to gather together all things in one in Christ. And then verse 11. Now this is significant. It says, In him we have, uh, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Hallelujah. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All right. So we've been predestined. And then he goes on to say that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the 
praise of His glory. Now, we talked about predestination last week and what it does mean and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that some are predestined to, to be saved and go to heaven and other people are just predestined to be lost and go to hell. But, look, it, 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 but we're predestined. We read in, from the book of Romans last week that when we receive Jesus, God says, okay, I am predestining you to be conformed to the image of my son. We are, once we get in Christ, you know, th- th- and that's for whosoever believes, all right? Once you receive Jesus and God says, okay, now that you're on this road, uh, I'm going to conform you to the image of Jesus. And when everything's said and done, when I'm done with you, you're going to be like Jesus. Amen. Amen. You're going to look like Jesus. You're going to act like Jesus. That's what the predestination is. And that's what he's talking about here. Having predestined, having been predestined, it says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of his glory. So we can say it this way. We've obtained an inheritance and we've been predestined to be the the praise of his glory. And again, notice how this all happened. Notice how this all came about. In verse 12, it says that we who did what? First trusted in Christ. Hallelujah. So it came about, we got into it, by trusting in Christ. Amen. Not by our works, but by trusting in Christ. By believing. That's the gospel. The gospel is trusting in in what Jesus has done in his death and the shedding of his blood and his resurrection. That's the gospel. The gospel is not trusting in what we can do in our works to try to make ourselves good enough to get to God or to go to heaven. It is trusting in what Jesus did for us. Amen? And again, you missed a good, another good place to shout there. Hallelujah. All right. Um, So again, uh, let's talk about this inheritance. Because he's again, back in verse 11, it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Again, in that time that Paul was writing, there were slaves. There were slaves. There was the laboring class. that, that They weren't slaves. They were free. But they still didn't have much of a hope of bettering their lives. And then there was the wealthy. Uh, and, And so there was... You know, this experiment that we've been a part of or that, that, that has been taking place here for the last, whatever, 240 plus years uh, called America is quite unique to where uh, people can go from, from poverty, from nothing, uh, to go to, to, to uh, achieving great things and great dreams. This was not available to people in that day. They, they couldn't, they, they didn't have that. That system, and I believe that, that our system was inspired by God because God wants people to be blessed and to be free and to, be, and to, and to pursue their God-given dreams. So, but they, they didn't have much of a hope of this, uh, these people in Ephesus. Many of them were slaves. Some were free, but were just laborers. And then there was the very wealthy. Only the wealthy really had any hope of having an inheritance. An inheritance was something that was a foreign concept to the slave and to the, just the common laborer. Uh, but Paul says, look, we've obtained 
and inheritance. I don't care what your background is. I don't care if you're a slave. You may be a slave or free. Whatever you are, we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. Hallelujah. He's telling the Ephesians and he's telling us, look, you're a child. I don't, again, I don't care what your background is, what, you're, what you may or may not have in the natural. You Now you are a child of the Most High God. You're a child of the Maker of heaven and earth. And he has given you an inheritance. Hallelujah. Amen. The Bible says in Proverbs that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. What well, do you think? God is a, he's not a man, but he's a good well, he's left an inheritance for us. Amen. He's given us an inheritance. Paul, in fact, reminded when, you know, he, after he left Ephesus, as he was coming back through that area later, he didn't make it back to Ephesus. But, you know, we, we read this last week, I think, or the week before. He called for the elders of the church. By this time, the church had grown. And uh, he called for the elders of the pastors of the church in Ephesus and he called them, he was in a place called Miletus, and he said, you guys come over here, I want to spend some time talking to you, and uh, giving you, my, basically it was his farewell address to them, and so they, and so they came, and, and we read that farewell address in Acts chapter 20, which we read either last week or the, again the week before. I just want to point out one verse from it here, in Acts 20 verse 32, he says, so now brethren, I commend you to God, and to the word of his grace, which is able to do what? To build you up and what? Give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So the way he said, you're going you're going to find out about your inheritance and you're going to partake of your inheritance when you, uh, when you get into the word of his grace. So it's the word of God that reveals our inheritance. It's the word of God that will give us our inheritance as we receive and believe and act on the Word of God. Amen. Peter talks about this inheritance as well in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. And he's saying we've been begotten us again means we've been born again. Amen. We've been born again, born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're born again. We can be born again. That's available to us. We can experience the new birth because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he says, we've been begotten again or born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance. We've been given an inheritance. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. This is not, this is not something, a natural inheritance, but it's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it does not fade away, reserved, reserved in heaven for you. Now, because it's reserved in heaven for us, it does not mean that the only way we can ever partake of any of it is when we get to heaven. Now, some of it, that is the case, but we can draw on our inheritance now. For instance, for instance, Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said, but my God shall supply all your need. How? According to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Amen? 
So some of that inheritance we can and should walk in and partake of now. Amen. All right. Now, so he says, uh, uh, he says it's, it, it's uh, an inheritance reserved in heaven for you, verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. All right. We go back to Ephesians uh, 1 and verse 13. He says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And uh, let me... Let me get back to my, uh, where verse 13 is on my notes. Let's see. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of its glory. So let's talk about, uh, point out a couple of things here. It says, in him you also trusted. And so, again, that's how we enter into this, by trusting. In him you trusted. And then he says, having believed, in verse 13, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. Or another word to say, I think the King James uses the word, who is the earnest of our inheritance. Anybody ever bought a house or a piece of property? And what did you do? You put down what? Earnest money. What was, what was the earnest money that you put down? You said, I want to buy this property and until I get everything together, I'm going to give you this money right now as a promise and as a guarantee that I want to buy this and you can count on that, that uh, I'm, I'm giving you this down payment or this earnest money right now. I'm going to go and get, get my financing together and I'm going to pay you the whole thing, but you've got this to hold right now, right? That's what the Holy Spirit is for us today concerning our inheritance. He's the down payment. He's the earnest money for our inheritance. God says, I'm going to go ahead and, and give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go ahead and fill you with the Holy Spirit and, and seal you with the Holy Spirit because that's my, that's my down payment. I got more for you. I got more that's coming. But I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit right now. Amen? All right. Until the full redemption. It says until the redemption of the purchased possession. We, could, we should say the full redemption. Now, our full redemption won't occur fully, completely, until Jesus comes again and that we receive our glorified body. All right, the Bible talks about that in Romans and other places. So, all right, so what I want to do, some of these phrases, as he writes here, you know, it's like, okay, the, you know, with all wisdom and, and, and prudence and, and the dispensation of the fullness of the times and, and predestined and all of this, it's kind of hard to understand, right? Oh, it's not for y'all, just, just for me? Okay, I'll be... I'll be on. So I want to read it. I want to read it in a couple of other translations, and it will shed some light on really what he's saying here as well that I think will help us. So let's read. We're going to read it. I'm just going to read 7 through 14, verses 7 through 14 in the New Living and then in the Message. So look at, look at this out of the New Living. I love this. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. 
Verse 9, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit. Look at that. I love that. When you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. When you believed on Jesus, God said, okay, that's it. They're mine. You're mine. Hallelujah. Amen. Glory to God. He claims us. He identifies us as his own by giving us the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this. So, that, so we would praise and glorify Him. All right? Let's read out the message now. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, His blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're a free people, free of penalties and punishments, chalked up by all our misdeeds, and not just barely free either, abundantly free. Don't you like that? Again, you missed another good place to shout. Y'all are slow in the draw tonight. You're missing all these good places to shout. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth. Verse 11, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Hallelujah. It's in Christ, look at that, that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us. Praise God. Think about that for a second. Long before you first heard of Christ and got your hopes up, He already had his eye on you. Hallelujah. Had designs on us for glorious living. Part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that you, once you heard the truth and believed it, this message of your salvation, found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered. By the Holy Spirit. You know that song? Here I am, Jesus. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. Amen. (laughs) Hallelujah. Signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. This signet from God is the first installment on what's coming. A reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us. A praising and glorious life. Wow. Praise God. That uh, sheds some light on those hard-to-understand phrases and passages in there. Amen? All right, we'll wrap it up with, the, with this part. 
So, so after verse 14, then Paul, Paul starts to pray for them. And uh, let's, let's read this prayer that he prays in verse 15. Therefore, he says, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Wow. You know, a lot of our prayers, a lot of our prayer requests, while God is concerned about every detail and every area, every aspect of our lives, compared to, compared to this, those are kind of low-level prayers, right? I mean, this, this is an amazing prayer. I mean, you know, if you're struggling to believe God for your mortgage payment or to pay your light bill or your rent payment or your car payment, and again, I'm not minimizing all that, and, and God wants us to ask him for all those things. But, but Paul's going way beyond that. And if we'll get a hold of what he's praying for us here, then we'll, we'll have the confidence in God to take care of us in every situation. We won't have to wring our hands and struggle and, and hope that he's going to come through for us this time. If, if, we, if we will get into this and, and, and let this prayer really become a reality in our lives, then, then those, those, those lower level things will cease to be issues in our lives. Amen. Anyway, he says here, he says, uh, he says, I'm praying. He says that, he said, I, and I, when I first heard of your faith in, in Jesus. So this is a prayer for believers, right? And your love for all the saints. He said, I don't cease. I'm doing it all the time. Giving, this is a prayer that I pray over you, you all uh, constantly and continually. Um, that, the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of, of glory, would give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. It's all, and he goes on praying like that. It's all about having our eyes opened, our spiritual eyes, our understanding, so that we would know who we are in Christ, what our position is, what our inheritance is, and that we would know the power and the authority that we have in Christ. Look at, look at what he prays here. He says again, verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you would know, number one, what is the hope of his calling. He's called us. Amen. He's called us to... to, to be his people. He's called us to declare his glory and to show forth his glory. He's called us to show the world who he is. That's our calling. Praise God. Uh, what is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And the third thing, what is the exceeding greatness of his power? What? Toward us 
It's not just, oh, God, you have such great power up there. No, no, no. That power is toward us who believe. That power is for us. And what power is it? He said, well, it's according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That same power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is toward, uh, directed to, made available to us who believe. Praise God. And he goes on and says, uh, uh, when, he, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, where? Far above. Verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age and that which is to come. Verse 22. He put all things under his feet. Now remember, we are the body of Christ, right? Jesus is the head We are the body. Paul declares right here that all things have been put where? Under his feet. So that means that all things have been put under us, under our feet, all right? And gave him to be head, so he clarifies it here in case anybody was doubting or wondering, gave him to be head, Jesus, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church is the body, The feet are the lowest, last time I checked, my feet are the lowest place in my body. But he put all things under, he didn't say put all things under the head, he put all things under his feet. Amen? What does that mean? That means that we've been given power and authority in Christ. Amen. I want to read to you, as we wrap this up, I want to read to you from a couple, uh, a passage out of this book, which is a great book, Tongues Beyond the Upper Room by by Kenneth Hagin. Uh, and uh, he, he talks about, this was in, the, uh, in 1947, winter of 47 and 48. He was pastoring. He'd been pastoring 12 years. This ended up being the last church he pastored. And he's talking about seeking God. And uh, he said, I also spent a lot of time praying in the Spirit and praying Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1 and three, for myself, over and over again. So this is the first prayer that we find in the book of Ephesians. It's in chapter one. There's another one that we'll get to when we get to chapter three. That's in chapter three. These are powerful, powerful prayers. And again, I pray them both over over us as a church, as a congregation, over you. Um, He said, I prayed those prayers for myself over and over again. I kept my Bible open on the altar all the time, and every time I'd walk in, he, he, they lived in a parsonage, which was right next door to the church. He'd go over and, and, and go over to the church and spend whatever uh, extra time he had. And he would pray, and he kept his Bible open on the altar to, to Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. He'd come in, he'd pray those prayers, pray the Ephesians 1 prayer, the Ephesians 3 prayer. He said that every time I'd walk into the church for any reason, the first thing I'd do is get on my knees and pray those two prayers, inserting my name in them. All right, so he'd he'd, he'd pray. Uh, he said he'd personalize it. He said, "I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to me the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and the knowledge of you, Lord, the eyes of my understanding being enlightened, that I may know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and put it, and put His name or put Him personalized, first person in there. All right." 
Then I'd wait in his presence, sometimes in silence, sometimes praying in other tongues, trying to identify that sense of, deep, of dissatisfaction deep in his. God was leading him to, to go out into field ministry. And so he had to, get a, he had to discover that and, and understand that. So that's what he was praying about. But then he said, uh, One day the Lord said to me as I was kneeling at the church altar, praying in other tongues, I'm going to take you on to revelations and visions. I ran back in my study and wrote that down. That was the winter of 1947 and 1948. In six months' time, he said, I'm praying these, pra- these Ephesians prayers over and over, uh, over and over again, multiple times. And he says, in six months' time, revelation regarding God's word began to come to my spirit in such waves that I finally said to my wife, what in the world have I been preaching all these years? I've been so ignorant. It's a wonder to me that the deacons didn't have to come and tell me to get in out of the rain. By the end of 1948, I'd learned more about the Bible and the deeper things of God than I had learned in all the 14 years of ministry before that combined. Then in 1950, the visions began to come. Between 1950 and 1962, the Lord Jesus himself appeared to me eight times. On two of those occasions, he talked to me for an hour and a half. But again, all that started, that revelation came that he said in six months' time, I got more revelation than I had in the past 14 years since I'd been saved and in the ministry. In six months' time. And it came from praying, Father, I pray that you would give to me the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. I pray that the eyes of my understanding may be enlightened, that I would know. And he goes on, pray that prayer throughout the the prayer here at Ephesians 1, and then he also prays the the prayer in Ephesians 3, and that's where the revelation came from. Praise God. So if you want to know God better, if you want revelation of the things of God, pray this prayer. Amen? Let me read you one more more thing. Uh, This is, out of again, out of uh, Billy Brim's book, The Authority of the Believer, and How to Use It. I think we've got both of these books in the bookstore. Um, The book of, uh, and I read this the other day, uh, I think session one, the principles of the authority of the believer uh, are set forth in this new covenant letter to the body of Christ, the book of which we know as the book of Ephesians. All the Bible is for the church, but not all the Bible is about the church. The part of the Bible that is particularly about the church is in the New Testament epistles. The epistles tell you who you are, what you are, and what you have because you are in Him. Ephesians, even among all the epistles, is particularly pertinent to us today. You should read the first two chapters right now. Kenneth Hagin encouraged believers to pray the prayers in those chapters for themselves every day. They are spirit-given and anointed prayers that we may pray for ourselves or other believers. I have personalized those prayers and prayed them almost every day for many years. The spirit of revelation that has come to me has come as a result. All right. And then I just want to uh, read a little bit about the... uh, about our authority, which we touched on here in verses 22 and 23 that we read in the latter part of the prayer. Uh, this is, uh, she's, in this book, she quotes a lot from a, 
uh, a minister that's uh, gone on to be with the Lord many, many years ago, John A. McMillan, who wrote a book called The Authority of the Believer. Uh, and uh, so this, is called, this uh, heading is called The Location of Authority. Through the elevation of the Lord's people with their head, again, he put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, okay? Through the elevation of the Lord's people with their head, they are made to sit with Christ. And as we next week, we'll get into chapter 2, and he, he elaborates more on this in chapter 2. But, uh, but I want to go ahead and read this. They are made... The church, believers, are made to sit with Christ in the heavenlies. Christ's seat is at the right hand of God. His people, therefore, occupy with Him the same august position. This honor is not to a chosen few, but is the portion of all those who share the resurrection of the Son of God. It is the birthright of every true believer of every born-again child of God. The right hand of the throne of God is the center of power of the whole universe, actually of all creation. And the exercising of the power of the throne was committed unto the ascended Lord. The elevation of His people with Him to the heavenlies has no other meaning than that they are made sharers of the authority which is His. They are made to sit with Him. That is, they share His throne. To share a throne means without question to partake of the authority which it represents. Indeed, they have been thus elevated in the plan of God for this very purpose that they may even now exercise to the extent of their spiritual apprehension authority over the powers of the air and over the conditions which those powers have brought about on the earth and are still creating through their ceaseless manipulations of the minds and circumstances of mankind. In other words, he's saying believers are to exercise authority over the devil and what the devil's doing. And he says we will exercise that authority only to the degree of our spirit over, over to the extent of their spiritual apprehension. If you don't know about your authority, you can't exercise it. If you don't know the depths and the and the and the uh, uh, magnitude of your authority in Christ, you'll never exercise it. That's why Paul says, "I'm praying for you that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened." I'm praying for you that God give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Why? So that you can stand in that authority that you've been given in Christ and so you can confidently and boldly and in faith exercise that authority over the powers of darkness. Praise God. We are to exercise authority over the powers of the air and over the conditions which those powers have brought about on the earth and are still creating through their ceaseless manipulations of the minds and circumstances of mankind. Hallelujah. So God has delegated that to us. Amen. We're praying. You know, again, the Lord uh, told Brother Hagin, you're wasting your time to pray and ask me to do something about the devil. 
I told you to do something about it. I delegated authority to you. Amen? And, and we will rise to our place of authority when we, when we understand, when we have revelation of who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. And that's what we see right here in the book of Ephesians. That's what's revealed to us. Praise God. Amen? Father, we thank you. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord. And we pray in the name. In fact, let's, let's pray this prayer. Just pray this after me, phrase by phrase. That'd be a good way to close out tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to me the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. May the eyes of my understanding be enlightened that I may know what is the hope of your calling? What are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward me who believes according to the working of your mighty power which you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead? And seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places. I am seated with him far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And you put all things under his feet. And you gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. I am born again. I am in the church. Therefore, all things are under my feet. And I exercise the authority that's been given to me in the name of Jesus over all the powers of darkness in the name of Jesus. Amen.